How many of you, when it comes to the stories that you read or the shows or the movies that you watch on TV, love surprises? Do you love a surprising twist of events or a, or a surprise ending? If you do, I think you're going to really enjoy the passage in the book of Philippians that we're going to look at today. If you have a Bible uh, with you or uh, a Bible app uh, on your phone or your personal device, uh, turn to Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to continue on in this series looking at this first section of text of Paul's letter to this church in Philippi, where Paul essentially in this section provides three escalating surprises. That's what we're going to look at today, the three escalating surprises provided in this text uh, by the Apostle Paul, beginning in verse 12, where he says this. He says, now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. This is surprise number one. Actually, it's kind of two surprises in one. Both the content is a surprise and sort of the nature of this content would be kind of a bonus surprise, but I'll, I'll, I'll consider this surprise number one. First of all, the content is a surprise when he says that what's happened to him has actually served to advance the gospel. When he's referring to what's happened to him, Paul is referring to his imprisonment in Rome. And if you're unfamiliar with kind of the background, I'd encourage you to read the latter chapters of the book of Acts, where this former Jewish leader, Pharisee, Christian church persecutor, Paul, who became a, a convert and follower of Jesus and real messenger of his life-changing message of love, uh, was really on the move and was antagonizing the Jewish leaders and even the civic authorities because of the impact of the spread of the message of Jesus. And so eventually they were trying to kind of charge him with some things. And in response, Paul appealed to Caesar. He said, I want to take this case all the way to Rome. I want to appeal to Caesar. And that's what has him in this Roman prison awaiting trial. And so one would assume that since Paul was kind of put into prison for preaching the message of Jesus, that the spread of Jesus' message would be stifled. But Paul is saying, in fact, it's been stimulated. And that's kind of surprise number one. Now, the, the bonus surprise, if you were a first century reader, especially from the church in Philippi, is that this is what Paul introduces here. Um, remember last week we learned that the, the nature of the letter of the book of Philippians is a friendship letter. It's of people exchanging heartfelt love who've been longtime friends. And after a short introduction in kind of the technical ingredients of a friendship letter, the next move would be to update on how you were doing personally. And Paul seems to start off that way where he says, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, and you would expect him to update them on how he's doing personally, how he's feeling, how his health is getting along, whether he's met any friends, has he read a good book lately, all this kind of personal stuff. But Paul feels so passionately about the surprising spread of the message of Jesus, what he calls the gospel, that this is what he chooses to communicate when you would expect him to share on how he's doing. In fact, how he's doing is synonymous with how the message and movement of Jesus is spreading. That's the first surprise. He goes on to provide some detail as to how that has surprisingly happened, how the movement and message of Jesus has continued to spread, even though it was intended to be stifled by his imprisonment. In verse 13, he says, as a result, it has become clear 
throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And number two, he says, because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Here, the two implications of Paul's imprisonment are effects, first of all, internally in the Roman prison system, and then externally among the church of Rome, what he calls the brothers and sisters. Starts off talking about internally with the whole palace guard. Basically, as Paul was imprisoned at Caesar's palace, the Roman guard that will, will kind of look after him and, and, and guard him uh, worked on rotating shifts of about every four hours. So you think, you know, Paul's in there days and months and even years, and four hours goes by, four hours goes by. He would have interacted with a lot of people for a long time. And these people got the chance to be captivated by his life and message because he says he's in chains for Christ. It's an interesting term if you're studying this that he says he's in chains for Christ. It's kind of a, a double entendre because he doesn't just mean that he's in chains because of Christ. He's in chains because he's been preaching the message of Jesus. But he also, by saying he's in chains for Christ, is kind of implying that he's modeling the very way of Jesus, that he's in chains as Christ, and that he's entering into the way of life of the suffering servant of Jesus. And it's because of his message around the Roman prison, and more importantly, the medium that is the message of his life imprisoned for the sake of Jesus, that he's having a compelling impact spreading the message of Jesus among this Roman palace guard. Then because of that, there's a second implication among what he calls the brothers and sisters, the, the church at kind of nearby Rome. You can imagine that if you were part of the Roman church and the, the superstar preacher Paul was suddenly in prison for preaching, that it would kind of dial back the zeal or the intensity of how you would share your faith in public. But now they, that they've been able to see the impact of Paul's imprisonment, it's actually emboldened them as well. And they've been able to share the love and the life-changing message of Jesus with a greater degree of courage. Right, we look at these two dynamics, and in one sense, the message of Jesus is spreading wider, what in churchy words we refer to as evangelism. And in the other sense, the, the message of Jesus is kind of growing deeper and stronger in existing followers of Jesus, what we refer to as discipleship. And so both from the perspective of evangelism and discipleship in growing wider and in growing stronger and deeper, the message of Jesus is surprisingly spreading in spite of Paul's imprisonment. That's the first surprise. Now, his next comment would serve as the second surprise, and it kind of takes you back. In verse 15, he says, kind of a by-the-way comment, he says, now it is true that some preached Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. Shockingly, this group of brothers and sisters that are emboldened to share the message of Jesus, you know, more courageously, uh, Paul recognizes that many of them are actually doing it with mixed motives. And that would have been kind of a shock to a Philippian reader. And, and Paul goes on to explain and kind of describe what he means, actually in inverse order. So first of all, he describes what's going on with the, the, the good-hearted messenger, the person sharing their faith out of goodwill. He says in verse 16, the latter do so out of love, 
knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. He says that some of these spiritual siblings are kind of really partnered with Paul, almost like a sports team where they recognize that Paul is playing the role of defense, actually defending the gospel while he's in prison, which to Paul is what he assumes is actually on trial. Paul's not on trial. The gospel of Jesus is. And their role is actually to kind of put the puck in the net or put the ball in the, in the net to play the role of offense and move the Christian message and the movement forward. He's on defense, they're on offense, and they're working well together. But to this former group, the, the, the people who he says are preaching out of envy and rivalry, he says this in verse 17. He says, the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. It says this first group preaches out of selfish ambition. Now, it's hard to know exactly what they're up to. What, what we can know for certain is that this group of ill-motived uh, messengers of Jesus are not false teaching. They're not, they're not sharing or providing an inaccurate or a wrong message of Jesus. Consistently throughout the New Testament, even in the book of Philippians, Paul has harsh words for false teachers. In this case, it just feels like they're trying to take advantage of the fact that Paul's imprisoned and as preaching and the message of Jesus is now regaining popularity, it's an opportunity for their personal star to rise. It's as if Paul's imprisonment has given them the opportunity to gain a platform. I don't know how they measured that in those days, whether it was YouTube views or Instagram followers, but in whatever way it meant to them, they were taking advantage and maybe even speaking ill of Paul in order to gain a following for themselves. That would have been the second surprise that among these people who were sharing the message in Rome, some of them were doing it out of ill motive. But then in response to all of that, the Apostle Paul provides what I would say is the final and probably the most significant surprise in this chunk of text we're going to look at today. It concludes in verse 18. He says, but in light of these people, he says, but what does it really matter? So the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice in spite of the fact that people are out to get him, in spite of the, the fact that people are stealing his platform, Paul doesn't care. He just celebrates the fact that the message and movement of Jesus is progressing. And in a way, that kind of bookends this section of text where it started by Paul celebrating that the message of Jesus was advancing and it kind of concludes with him rejoicing over the reality that the message of Jesus is advancing. And in between, he throws these surprises out in spite of the personal circumstances of his imprisonment and in spite of the personal hardship and the opposition that he was facing. This was happening, and to him, that's all that mattered. On top of the surprise that this is what he was sharing instead of his personal information, that this mattered so much to Paul to share about how he's doing personally. Well, the big question is, in lieu of all these surprises, like, why would Paul share this at this point to the church at Philippi? What does he want them to know and do? Well, remember that last week we learned that this whole letter, this friendship letter, is in the hopes that the Philippian church, using Paul's language from last week, would abound in love more and more, and through that abounding love, reveal Jesus to each other and to the world around them. 
that what Paul is hoping for amongst this vast diversity of people in the Philippian church is for them to experience harmony. And after teaching them the first how-to last week as to how that happens, by first things first, looking to the very source of love and the source of life in the person of Jesus himself through prayer, he teaches them the second how-to by demonstrating it in his own personal life. That in spite of personal circumstance and in spite of personal opposition, the way you experience harmony is by valuing the movement and the spread of the message of Jesus above all else. What Paul is teaching them is that the way harmony happens is by galvanizing around the commitment the priority and the intensity of a common cause, specifically the cause of the person of Jesus Christ. Now, in our day and age, I would say that this provides us with a deal-breakingly critical component of what it takes for us to experience harmony these days and for the church in general to experience harmony and to celebrate an abounding love in a unity amidst all of our diversity. See, maybe counterintuitively, most of the time when we look at diverse groups and try to unify them together, we pay attention to the diversity and we try to understand the diversity and make accommodation for the diversity and tolerate the diversity and even orient ourselves to the other to kind of engage in reciprocity across the lines of diversity. The point is so often we try to be united amidst our diversity by focusing on the diversity. What Paul teaches is that the key to actually embracing a life of harmony is actually to focus on what unites us, not just try to accommodate and work with what divides us. That what actually unites followers of Jesus and communities of faith together and what allows us to reveal Jesus through growing in an abounding love and, and give off that fragrance of harmony is a shared commitment and a shared passion, a shared priority, and a shared investment in not just the person, but in the purpose of Jesus. That the common cause of Christ is what unites in a way that intends to supersede our personal circumstances and even supersede our personal conflicts and, and personal opposition. The cause of Christ is to be the primary thing that unifies diverse groups of followers of Jesus. Last week, he taught that if we're going to be a harmony of love, it requires each of us and us together to behave as a symphony of prayer. This week, what he's offering up is that if we're going to be a harmony of love, it requires a single orchestrated purpose. And for each of us to be all into sharing in that purpose together. I think that when it comes to groups of people, we kind of know that common cause is, is what unites us. Remember Jerry Seinfeld joking about this years ago, wondering why it's so hard to, for people to get along these days. And uh, he was talking about, you know, when you're a kid, this is kind of intuitive. You're walking down the street, you see a kid with an ice cream cone, you say, hey, you like ice cream? Yeah, I like ice cream. Really? You like ice cream? I like ice cream. Let's be best friends. And it's really that simple. Because common cause, Seinfeld understands, is as kids, what immediately binds us together. As grown-ups, and especially in environments like church communities, that can be a, a, a little bit more complicated. But I've noticed, even in recent months, the very same thing to be true. 
in recent months around Southridge, we've been uh, kind of spending time as a leadership uh, getting up close and personal with our membership and individually kind of hearing people's hearts on where our church is at and where we sense God leading us and whether we're supportive or struggling and things like that. And, and what I've noticed when it comes to unity and diversity is kind of this little equation that I've introduced to our leaders and to our, our board of elders to pay attention to. I've said to them, pay attention to whether why equals why. That's the math of kingdom unity and diversity, whether why equals why. And not just the letter why, but literally the word why, whether the word why equals the word why. And what I mean by that is whether the why of why a person would be part of a church community is the same as the why of why that community exists. If the why equals why, you have unity and can have unity in diversity. If the why doesn't equal why, you have bigger issues at play. And the truth is that, you know, in the Christian church, even in our church, there are lots of different whys that people have for why they're a part of a church these days. Some people are part of a church, they say, because I was born there. It's been the only church I've ever known. I'm going to die here. It's, you know, my, my lifelong church, I've been in the church all my life. Some people feel like they're, they're, they're into that church because it's convenient. It's the one closest to my home or I, I can get a ride to. For some, it's preferences. I like the coffee that they serve or happen to like the music style there. For some, it's based on individual people. I like the preacher. Don't hear that as much, but uh, or maybe my, my, this is the church where my kids' friends go. No, there's all kinds of different reasons why people ultimately choose to be part of a specific faith community. The question is, is that the same reason why a church exists? Does why equal why? Or ideally, I would say, according to the Apostle Paul, does why equal why equal why? Does the reason why a person is part of a church equate to the reason why that church exists? And does that equate to Jesus' purpose for the church to ultimately bring Jesus and his love to life and in doing so reveal his love and life-changing message to the world? See, the truth is, in our day and age, there's lots of diversity and lots of reason to divide over that diversity. Lots of reason to get polarized and subdivide, especially when you throw in, you know, difficult circumstances and personal conflicts and oppositions. And in the church, we experience all this kind of stuff. We rub each other differently and people have different beliefs on things that kind of move us in different directions relationally and in our chemistry with people or we don't get to play the same role that we used to or the role that we'd ultimately aspire to or somebody in the church has hurt us or the list goes on. There's all kinds of reasons to divide. What Paul and God through Paul is inspiring us to consider today is what is the reason we unite? And is the reason we unite the very reason that Jesus intends us to unite? And that is his cause in the world today. The action step for today's text in the book of Philippians for you and I and us together today is to take a moment and reflect on the way that we personally relate, not just to the person of Jesus, but to his purpose in our lives and together as a community. Are we engaged in that purpose or is our relationship with the church just kind of a, a place that we go for an event for an hour, a week or so every, every once in a while? Are we engaged with a prioritization of this purpose? How much does this matter to us? And does it matter to us as much as it matters to Jesus? 
Or is our involvement in our faith community kind of intermittent and casual and haphazard and when it's, when it's convenient for us? And most specifically, what does our investment in that purpose look like? When we look at our time, our talents, our, our human resources and our gifts, and most importantly, our financial treasures, are we invested with the kind of priority that Paul demonstrates here that's even more important than updating people on how he's doing? This to him matters the most because this to him matters the most to Jesus. Is this the thing that matters most to us? Or is it kind of an appendage to the real priorities, the real investments in our lives? The action step for day, today for us to reflect on personally and process in our life groups and with our friends and family members is the degree to which we're relating, not just to the person, but the purpose of Christ through a community like ours. Pastor Rick Warren said that years ago, uh, this was the, the, the major issue that the church was facing when it came to it, it experiencing unity and diversity. He said the problem with the church is that 95% of people in the church these days believe that the purpose of the church is to meet their personal needs. And only about 5% believe that the purpose of the church is to reveal Jesus to the world around them. With church leaders, he said, it's the opposite. 95% believe that the purpose of the church is to reveal Jesus to the world around them. And only 5% believe that it's to actually cater to or meet people's individual needs. And that disconnect is one of the primary reasons that the church struggles. The question today is, what's our why? And can we be united around the Jesus why to reveal his life and love in the world where God's placed us? You got to know, for the last 20 years or so, that's been our single and solitary why as a community, to make sense of Jesus where God's placed us, to bring his love to life, to reveal him in a medium is the message kind of a way. It's why we moved to St. Catharines in the first place almost 20 years ago. It's why when we did, we opened up a 24-7 homeless shelter. It's why we expanded into other regions in Niagara, into the, the, the Vineland, Lincoln area, and into the Welland, Pelham, Fonthill area. It's why all of three of our locations are more defined by our anchor causes trying to make a compassion and justice difference than our large group weekend gatherings. It's why over the years we've tried to gain ground in an experience of equality among men and women serving and leading together better than we could on our own. It's why we've sought to gain ground in the inclusion of LGBTQ plus people. It's why we've tried to gain ground in becoming good relatives with indigenous folks. Everything we've done year over year over year for the past two decades, if not beyond, has been because of this single solitary why to bring Jesus to life. The way we often say it these days is because Jesus came to earth to incarnate love, we as his followers are invited personally and together to follow him in becoming love incarnate. That's our why. The question is, is that your why for being part of this community of spiritual siblings together? The message that Paul teaches in this section of Philippians is that the only way that four or five months from now, we're going to raise a glass to being this Jesus expressive community through an increasing abounding in love for one another is because we've experienced harmony with each other. And the way harmony happens, the way you and I become a harmony of love is by galvanizing around an orchestrated purpose. 
Because Jesus came to incarnate love, you and I and us together have the opportunity of a lifetime to grow together and follow him and become incarnate love, to be the medium that is the message that shares who he is in the world around us. But it requires engagement and commitment and prioritization and investment in that purpose because you don't experience unity in diversity by just focusing on and accommodating the diversity. It requires the unity of a common cause. It requires the unity around the person and more importantly, the, pers- the purpose of Jesus Christ. So let's appreciate that if we're going to become this harmony of love, it's only going to happen as we give our lives to galvanizing around an orchestrated purpose, the purpose of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Jesus, we just thank you for inviting us into participating with you in your purpose, for not just rescuing us as fallen, broken kids and adopting us as your as your children, as your family, but allowing us to be co-laborers with you and to be partners in this thing you call the gospel. I pray that you would inspire us. I pray that you would invite us anew into this adventure of a lifetime to give the very best of our lives to what matters most in the world to you. And I pray that as we do, that we can experience the unity amidst the diversity of so many different people among us, that that can result in a harmony that allows us to abound in love more and more and reveal who you are to each other and to the watching world. Make us those people. Give us that value, that commitment, that priority, that intensity of investment into your purpose, Jesus, and help us to enjoy the unity in diversity that results. We love you. We thank you for all these things. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.